Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, Maggie, our listeners did it. You guys got us to 15 written reviews on iTunes. Which made us super happy. Yeah, we were texting each other. Each time one would come on, we were like, look, we got a review. We were at 13. We were at 14. So, without further ado, here is your bonus episode. When an adult goes missing, the search takes a different approach. We first question not whether something happened to them, but whether the person could have simply chosen to leave of his or her own volition. Could the person have just had enough? Or have they been escaping something? But what makes these adult cases even more difficult is when you add other factors. For example, if the missing person had previously run away, sometimes in those cases, it's easy to assume that that is what happened again, to come up with excuses and reasons. Additionally, when we add mental illness to the situation, similar assumptions are made. There's a tendency to believe that the person left willingly, perhaps aware or perhaps unaware of what he or she was doing. What we don't immediately believe is that someone has harmed the person. And finally, when we add drugs and alcohol addiction into the mix, well, again, the public tends to blame the missing person for his or her own disappearance. We blame and we blame instead of questioning and questioning. Our case today should lead us to question the details we know. And there are some odd details. Dismembered body parts, a disturbing phone call, and curious clues left in curious places. This is the story of Diane Louise Augett. Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. April 10th, 1998 was a normal day. 
Deborah Cronin had left her home in Hudson, Florida, according to a newspaper article by Jeff Doherty, for a doctor's appointment and returned to an empty home. What was odd about this is that Deborah's sister, Diane Augett, had recently moved in with her and should have been home, or at least should have returned home by that evening. When she didn't come home, Deborah spoke with their mother, and their mother, Mildred Young, reported her daughter missing on April 11, 1998. Deborah has told both interviewers and law enforcement that Diane had been happy in the previous few days. There was no sign that anything was wrong. And that statement was a big deal, Maggie, because Diane Augett had been through a lot for the last 10 years. So how old is she? So at this moment, she's 40. So since she was in her late 20s, early 30s, she had had some struggles in her life. So Diane, as I just said, now 40, when she was 30, her life as she knew it began crumbling. Previously, she'd been an artist and a pretty talented artist from everything I read who loved camping and fishing. So again, like I, we keep covering these stories of people who like the things that we're, we're like, like, no, no. Nah. I also cannot draw, but <laughs> kudos to you. Well, she was also a loving wife to Frederick and a mother to a son and two daughters. But around this time, she was diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder. Her mood swings, according to her family, were extreme. According to Diane's mother, Mildred, in an interview in 2000 with the Tampa Bay Times, quote, she deeply needed institutionalized care. So is bipolar disorder, and I don't know a lot about it, um, just something that can randomly start all of a sudden, like a light switch? I wasn't, I'm not too familiar with it myself, but I think it is. I think it's something where it's not like you're going to necessarily diagnose it when you're a child, that it's something that can kind of manifest itself later. And if you've ever known anyone who's had bipolar disorder, then you know that one of the hardest parts can be convincing them when they're experiencing a manic high that they need their medication. Oh, okay. Right? So they're, they're feeling like, well, I'm I'm feeling healthy. I'm feeling good. Right. Why do I need to take medication? And I really believe if we're honest with ourselves, we get it. I don't know about you, Maggie, but I know I hate to take medicine. Oh, same. I hate it. I mean, well, mine comes from two things. Number one, when I was a kid in church one Sunday, I had like those sweet tarts that are in the long roll, the hard ones. Yes. Well, I told my mom that I needed to go to the bathroom and I went out into the lobby where there was a water fountain and my mom had been sick and I had seen her take medicine and I was like, I'm going to try this. So I took one of those sweet tarts and those aren't little, Mm -mm. threw it back (gasps) in my mouth, took a drink of water and it got stuck in my throat. Oh my God. Like not stuck enough that like somebody had to do like Heimlich maneuver, but I could feel it every swallow that I took. And we had a big dinner at church that night, and I remember I couldn't eat. Like, I had to just sit there and wait until it dissolved. And so after that, I was terrified to take medicine. Oh, my God. And so my mom would have to, like, 
there used to be like the little pills and you could open it up and there were like the little sprinkle things. Yeah, in it. And my mom would put it on a spoonful of jelly and (laughs) swallow it like that. And I remember my dad didn't know. My mom was like, yeah, you have to put it on a spoonful of jelly. And so my dad made me a jelly sandwich with it. It So that kind of led to my like (laughs) hatred and fear of swallowing medicine. But number two, I guess I just never want to like ingest something that I feel like my body doesn't need. And so I'm always like, if I have a headache, it has to be really bad before I even take Advil. Cause I'm like, my body will fight itself kind of thing. And I feel like, you know, because of those reasons, I think a lot of us have something like that in us. Most of us do. And so we kind of understand why yeah. if she's feeling healthy, right. Yeah. That she would be like, why would I take medicine? My mom, she'll sometimes like when I go home, when I go to sleep, she's like, well, do you want uh, an ibuprofen before you go to bed? And I'm like, well, no, I feel fine. And she's like, but if you take that, it might help you sleep better because sometimes you get sore. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> right. So I think we all kind of understand where Diane is coming from. After her diagnosis, Diane was known to not take her medication regularly, either by choice or by forgetfulness, which, again, I, I, am I think we've all been there. As a result, she was arrested several times, her marriage fell apart, and sadly, she lost custody of her three children. Worse yet, she turned to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate Oh no! when she was in the depressive state. Mm-hmm. In the 10 years between her diagnosis and her disappearance, according to several accounts, Diane had been institutionalized 32 times. Wow. I feel like that's a lot. It is a lot. And she had been initially taken into custody due to an act called the Baker Act. And this act, Maggie, it's one that in Florida allows a doctor, a judge, or a police officer to make the call that a person is ill enough to require an involuntary medical exam. I kind of like that, though. I do, too. And because of that, Diane had been taken to an institution under that involuntary commitment law. But she had just recently been released from a local mental health institution. And in an attempt to turn her life around, she had moved in with her sister, Deborah in Hudson, Florida, about 20 miles from where she had been living in Odessa. Okay. Trying to get it together, you know, live with somebody who can make you accountable, that sort of thing. Move kind of away from all your problems, a Mm -hmm. fresh start. Right. Well, we now know that Diane had left the home they shared around 11 a.m. on April 10th. So this is after her sister had left for that doctor's appointment. But what we don't know is why she left or where she was headed. Fortunately, a few people saw Diane that afternoon and in the days that followed. Diane was seen three miles from her sister's home at a pub called the Hayloft. So did she just walk away? Yes, she she did not have her driver's license or a car, so she would have either hitchhiked or walked. Okay. And it was three miles away. So, I mean, that's that's a walk, but, but it's she, not could that have, bad. Right, she could have made it. Even though we don't know the exact time that Diane was there, nor for how long, we do know that the bartender had cut her off because Diane seemed incoherent and was, quote, walking in circles. So the bartender's like, you're done. Yeah, no more for you. The second sighting of Diane was at 4 p.m. the following day. 
This sighting was by a driver who saw Diane walking along US 19 near the Coral Sands Motel. We do not believe that Diane had taken her medication at all in those entire two weeks since she had been released from the local mental institution to her sister's care. Okay, so she's not in a good no, mental state right, right exactly. now. So while Diane's family were concerned, many others suspected that, you know, she had fallen into old patterns, right? Like you were saying, Maggie, because she hadn't taken her medication, maybe she had experienced a mental break, maybe had wandered off somewhere, had been picked up, and maybe even institutionalized again. Well, I hope that, and I know you'll tell us here in a minute, but I hope that her background didn't affect how long it took for them to do something about it. Well, like I said in the introduction, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of cases that tends to be true that, you know, if someone's a runaway, if there's a history of drug or alcohol addiction, a prostitute, a prostitute, a history of mental health, that there is that initial assumption that it's not foul play. Right. While Diane's mother does believe that Diane had been released from her previous institutional stay too soon, she also believes that Diane herself did meet with foul play. Keeping Hope Alive, on April 14th, a waitress reported that she thought she had seen a woman fitting Diane's description eating lunch at the Inn on the Gulf Hotel. Nothing I saw, however, Maggie, said whether the waitress reported that the woman, if it was indeed Diane, was calm or was in distress. Like, I didn't read any details about it, just that she thought she saw someone meeting Who the description. Who looked like her. Yep. But the next clue that came concerning Diane's whereabouts would lead to something far different than hope. Oh, no. When Mildred Young, Diane's mother, returned home on April 14th, she checked the messages left on her answering machine and heard one message that stopped her cold. She heard her daughter Diane's voice on the message, tense and clear. Mildred heard the horrifying sounds of a struggle. Oh, no. Before she clearly heard Diane say, help, help, let me out. Oh. Then there was a sound of continued struggle. Mildred believes that it was caused by someone trying to wrench the phone from Diane's hand because she then heard, according to the Doe Network, her daughter say, quote, hey, give me that. And then... The line went dead and the message ended. I cannot imagine. As a parent? Yeah. Getting that and knowing, let me out? Yeah, that you knowing they need your help. Well, this call has haunted Mildred. This was not an indication of a voluntary runaway. This was instead a clear sign that Diane was held against her will. Right? Because why else would you say, let me out? Yeah, help, help. Right. At least there was a clue, a single word, starlight. When the call came through, the caller ID said that Diane's call had come from starlight. Do we know what that is? No. Mildred had tried to call the number back, but there was no response on the other end. I mean, obviously, if you're holding her daughter, right, you're not going to be like, hello, right? Hey. (laughs) How's it going? Yeah, and answer it. And... 
While there were six businesses with the word Starlight within a 45-mile radius of Diane's disappearance, law enforcement have not been able to trace Diane's call to any of them because this call that Mildred had received had originated in Odessa, and as stated, none of the six businesses with that name were located in that town. So how did it have that name? We don't know. The next day, and even more, if you can believe it, an even more terrifying clue emerged. I'm not ready. On April 15th, a woman was walking down US-19 and saw something that looked like a stage prop. When she returned home, she told her boyfriend about how she had seen something that looked like a part of a human finger. Why would you think that's a stage prop? Well, I mean... I mean, I probably would too. I wouldn't be like, oh, there's somebody's cut off, you know, cut off. I guess. This is really random. I know. Well, on April 16th, her boyfriend got curious, right? Like, what if it wasn't fake? What if it really was a clue for something that had happened? So he drove by, he pulled over, and he saw that it was part of a finger, that it was not fake, and he called police. According to several reports, the description of the finger between the woman who saw it first and her boyfriend had differed so much that initially police thought that they were looking for two different fingertips. But upon combing the area, they only found one. The top third of a finger, and one that, upon testing of the fingerprint, turned out to be Diane Augett's right middle finger. Oh my. Well, law enforcement then began searching an even wider perimeter around that area for any additional body parts. Makes sense. But they didn't find any. So then we're questioning Maggie, was this a sign by someone of Diane's fate? Is it a clue to her family that she's in trouble? According to Diane's brother-in-law, Al Finkelstein, law enforcement told him that they believed, and I never read anything about why they thought this, that the finger could have been severed accidentally. Like if a car door slammed on it and cut Uh. it off, it being the longest finger. (laughs) I know, the thought. (laughs) But to me, I mean, that still wouldn't be an accident. Yeah. We'll see how you accidentally... Slams your door that hard. ...to sever your finger. And... So, in addition to, to me, that seeming like an involuntary action, that door would have had to have been closed with some pretty strong force yeah. in order for a finger to be cut off versus, like, smashed yeah. in the door. Yeah, you just chop the end of your finger off. It's yeah. going to have to be the, pulled pretty a hard. third of your finger. But the biggest reason I doubt accidental explanation, Maggie, is because of the next clue found one week later. Oh, Lord. About a week after the missing fingertip was found, another discovery was made. In the outside freezer of the Totally Convenience Store, a store just a mile away from Diane's house in Odessa where she had previously resided, the manager, Patricia, found a bag of clothing. Okay, somebody is toying with the police. That's what it sounds like to me, Maggie. The clothes in the bag were neatly folded, and they had not been there when the manager had last checked the stock in the outside freezer three weeks earlier. According to one report, this was also a store where Diane's sister Deborah worked. Oh, no. Yes. Yep. 
So regardless, we do know that it was it was Deborah who identified the clothing as Diane's clothing that Deborah had just recently given her sister. And we also know Maggie that sometime between April 10th and April 18th, Diane's home had been burglarized. However, with Diane at her sister Deborah's house, we don't know the exact date. So her old house in Odessa, someone had robbed it, but we don't know when because Diane wasn't living there. Did she still own that home? Yes. So we don't know if, well, obviously, and here's the thing. So a lot of people have been like, oh, maybe these were clothes taken from that house, but. Maybe her sister put them there. Yeah. Well, I, I don't doubt her si- her sister in terms of like thinking that she had something to do with it. But here's what's going through my head. Number one, it's still not public record. The information of what, if anything, was taken from Diane's home. But it doesn't make sense to me if the clothing in the freezer were taken from Diane's home, right? If it were part of that burglary, because everything I read made it seem as though she was staying exclusively with her sister. And why would new clothes that her sister had just given her be back at her old home in Odessa? So So these weren't the clothes that she had on? No. So this makes me think, like, it wasn't something that was taken from the burglarized home. That that was a separate incident. So it had to be taken from the sister's house. Right. That's what's going through my head. But then, here's the other weird part. I also didn't read anywhere about Deborah noticing that clothes were missing when Diane disappeared. I don't know about you, Maggie, but I would think that the first thing I would do would be to go through to see if Diane had voluntarily left. And so I would look and see if there were missing personal items. To see if she packed up a suitcase yeah, or something. Yeah, anything that would indicate that she left of her own free will. And I haven't seen any report stating that Deborah had noticed, you know, items missing that would make her think that. But yet, here are clothes. Clothes that she had just given her. My brain is like going 7,000 different ways right now. Right. And so then you're questioning like, how did the person who left the clothes get them? However, because the freezer hadn't been checked in three weeks, remember the manager, Patricia, said, well, I know they weren't there three weeks ago. We don't know if the clothing had been placed there before or after Diane's disappearance. I guess she could have maybe like put them there thinking, I'm going to come back and get these. Right. And I actually read, there was one theory um, someone was talking about, and I'd never heard this, so I don't know if it's true. I'm just telling you a theory I read on the internet. (laughs) But somebody said that that can be a tendency of people with bipolar disorder, that they'll place things in different Areas like, oh, I'm going to get this later and like put it there, which sounds more like dementia to me. Yeah. Instead of, so that's why I don't know if I believe it, but that could, you know, play into what you just said. Or it could have been by the person who took her, right? Like, just trying to tease people, like, here's her fingertip, right? Here's her clothes. Right. And that leads me to this next bit of information. Two and a half years later, on November 25th, 2000, the case got even more bizarre. So nothing since the close until right. two and a half years later. Two and a half years later. The day before what I'm getting ready to tell you, on November 24th, the Tampa Bay Times had published a front page article about Diane August's case. They made a plea for additional information about her whereabouts. Like, let's just keep it like we try to do, Maggie, in the public consciousness. Keep people Refresh aware. Refresh the memory. Looking. Right. 
Well, on November 25th, to one day after that front page article, they did get a response. Just not the kind of response they were expecting. Terry Wilson, who happened to be Diane August's brother's girlfriend, walked into a Circle K on US-19 to buy a soda and a pack of cigarettes. It was there, lying on the counter by the lottery tickets, that she found another bag. This bag contained black eyeliner, a tube of pink lipstick, a bottle of taboo perfume, and a tube of generic toothpaste, identical to the kind that Diane had been given from that local mental health facility where she had been treated during the weeks before her disappearance. So the brother's girlfriend just walks into a gas station and it just so happens to be lying on the counter and she goes through it? Yes. And most eerily, Maggie, on the outside of the bag, in black Sharpie, was scrawled a single name, Diane. It was as though this was left just for Terry. Yeah, right? like they In saw her coming spot. and they like placed it on the counter and then scurried away. Right, which seems oddly coincidental, yeah. right? But then at the same time you think, okay... Now, the fingertip was found by a random person, but the first bag was in a store where Diane's sister worked. The second bag of Diane's items found in a convenience store that her brother's girlfriend just happens to walk into. It's too coincidental. Mm-hmm. Well, desperate to find out if this were real or some cruel joke, Terry took the bag to Diane's mother, Mildred, to verify, you know, is this Diane's? And Mildred agreed that the items looked just like ones that belonged to Diane. And while we don't know with 100% confidence that these items did belong to her, the timing of the day after the article was published and that coincidence of who found the items, it seems to me pretty clear that they would have been Diane's. Yeah. Well, after this finding was reported, a new witness came forward who said that she saw Diane near the Coral Sands Motel on US-19 on the same day that her mother had received that chilling message. Could the phone being wrestled, you know, between Diane and someone on that recording have been one from a hotel room? Wouldn't it have showed up Coral Sands Motel? Well, I don't know, right? That's a great point. But we know that the phone call came from somewhere in Odessa. That's true. I forgot about that. Well, the police looked into the report, but they were unable to find any conclusive evidence that Diane had been there. Oddly, however, almost a year after the discovery of the second bag, a robbery took place on June 27, 2001 at the Coral Sands Motel. Two masked robbers had come in and beaten one of the managers, Rose Casper, but had fled when her boyfriend, the other manager, Gary Robert Evers, had burst in toting his own gun. The masked men had gotten away, Maggie, but Evers thought he knew who they were. He thought they were wearing masks because they were someone from the neighborhood, right? And they were mm-hmm. afraid trying they would to be, hide who mm-hmm, they were identified. And Evers thought he knew who one of the men was. 26-year-old Todd Cammers, who had a history of burglary and, according to Evers, quote, ran the neighborhood. 
whatever's deceived Cammers into coming over to this building right behind the motel confronted him, accusing him of the attempted robbery. Wow. And I know. And when Kamers refused to confess and maintained his innocence, Evers unloaded two clips from his 9mm gun into Kamers' head and torso. That seems a little extreme to me. Yes. And a witness heard the shots and reported them to the police. And Maggie, Kamers was in fact innocent in this burglary, just like he was maintaining. And Evers was convicted of first-degree murder in 2004 and sentenced to life without parole. He died in prison in 2012, and many people believe because of that connection with the Coral Sands Motel and because of Diane's last sighting being right there near that motel, that Evers, now a convicted murderer of someone else, was involved in whatever happened to Diane. Well, he seems like he can kind of flip a switch on and I off. mean, that's true. But here's why I find it hard. Not that he's a good guy. Obviously, he's not, right? Right. But he was never charged with anything related to Diane's case, which tells me that they couldn't find any, any, evidence, yep, any evidence at all. And I know he committed murder. And I know that it was extreme, Right, And my heart grieves for the family of Todd Cammers. But at the same time, even though it was misguided, Evers thought he had a reason. Right? It was identifiable. He was like, this is a guy who tried to rob us, who beat my girlfriend. Right. He's angry, trying to protect people he loves. Right. And I haven't seen anything that even indicates that he knew Diane, nor that he had ever killed someone else randomly. And Maggie, with no credible clues after 2001, the case has since gone cold. I'm speechless. I know. You'd think with all of these things that were left, there would be fingerprints, fingerprints something, but Blood. no. Blood. Nope. It has now been 22 years and no more clues. Diane Augett is still missing. Did she simply run away? Did she suffer a psychotic break and is living somewhere potentially with no memory of who she is? Was she kidnapped? If so, was it by someone she knew, either from the neighborhood, from her group of friends, or perhaps someone with whom she shared time while being institutionalized? Or scarier yet, could she have been kidnapped by a complete stranger? The saddest part is that just like us, my sleuthhounds, her family doesn't know either. According to an article by Tamara Lush entitled Mother Clings to Hope for Missing Daughter, Mildred Young heart-wrenchingly stated the following, quote, a part of me is gone. I never accepted she was dead, end quote. Yet, sometimes, the fear and the dark potential of reality is what grips Mildred's thoughts tighter instead. Because in that same article, she also admits, quote, did someone cut her up piece by piece? That's what I think about, end quote. Diane Augett would now be 62 years old. She had a tattoo on her back and on her right shoulder. 
she would be missing the tip of her middle finger on her right hand and have a scar on her abdomen. Anyone with information concerning the whereabouts of or circumstances surrounding the disappearance of Diane Augett should contact Sergeant Charles Calhoun at the Pasco County Sheriff's Office at 800-854-2862. We hope you've enjoyed our bonus episode today. And don't forget to join us Thursday for our regularly scheduled episode. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.